Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Friends, I am so happy to be here with you again. And I'm so excited for you to listen to today's episode with Karen Gonzalez, my good friend and just theologian extraordinaire. Y'all, her new book, Beyond Welcome, is so stinking good. She takes us so much deeper in this book. The conversation just goes so much further. And it's exactly everything that we need right now. As I mentioned in the interview, a lot of our conversations our intro level conversations, uh, whether it's about race or immigration, a lot of us are speaking to people who may not know much about these things. But Karen assumes that all of us are already there, that we already are quote-unquote welcoming immigrants, and she urges us to go beyond welcoming. She challenges even those of us who feel like we might uh, already be doing great work, She challenges us to search deeper, to examine even ways that we might think that we have good intentions or examine even the areas where we might have, quote unquote, a good heart about these issues. Even for someone who is in the conversation, who is in the classroom, who is talking about these things and writing about these things, I felt challenged about so much of what she writes about in her book. In today's conversation, we talk about ethical storytelling What it means to tell stories in such a way that does not exploit or does not perpetuate harm. We talk about Joseph and Moses. Y'all know I love to talk about the Bible. (laughs) And she even introduced me to new ways of thinking about both of them, which is always so exciting for me to expand anything that I thought I knew about certain characters in the Bible. And we talk about the myth of the good immigrant, among so many other great things. So I know you guys love this conversation as much as I did. And seriously, go out and buy Karen's book. Lastly, welcome to The Protagonistas. Karen, I am so happy to have you here again. So this is the second time you're on the protagonistas, which is really exciting. You were like one of my very first like several guests, which is this was like five years ago. So <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> wow. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Wow, yeah. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, we had met through Twitter and that was like how we connected and you were in the process of writing your first book. And so I remember you had just like sent me like a chapter. You're like, this hasn't even been edited. Like, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh. So it's so cool to have you back for your second book um, as it's fully complete. So I was able to read the whole thing. Actually, I read most of it twice. So super good. I cannot wait for this thing to come out, Karen. I mean, I feel like it's really going to change the narrative and push the narrative just so much further than what we've had or been talking about. So this is everything that we need. So. Thank you. And we'll talk more about that because I can just like literally go on and on. Um, But I want you to talk to folks, just kind of share with folks your spiritual background to kind of give listeners some context. I know those of, you know, those of you who have been listening, have heard maybe this already, but I, you know, our stories kind of shift and change. And I'm sure maybe what you shared five years ago about your spiritual background might be completely different than now. So yeah, talk to us about your spiritual background. Sure. So I grew up in the Catholic Church, like a lot of Guatemalan little girls. (laughs) And so that's what I was raised in. But I would say it was very nominal. It wasn't as if my parents were, you know, the Catholic Church is very embedded in the culture in a lot of Latin American countries. And so it's kind of traditional to get baptized, to do your communion and all of this. So my parents were not particularly strong believers themselves, but it was part of the culture. And so, but I was always very interested in faith and curious about it. And of course, there was no one to really ask (laughs) any questions of. 
And it wasn't until I moved to the U.S. So I moved to the U.S. when I was nine. And then my abuelita, uh, we lived with her. And she really became my spiritual mother, except she didn't go to a Catholic church. She went to like a Pentecostal black church in LA. And so she took me to church with her. And she really is the one who I credit with my faith, just because I know she prayed for me and for all our family. And I also know that she talked to me a lot about God and she would talk about her her faith and how much strength she drew from God. And, you know, her life was really hard. She was undocumented and, um, but she really instilled in me that sense of love of God and the way and the strength we draw from God. And, you know, her faith was a faith of survival. It wasn't, you know, she didn't sit around pondering, oh, why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> that wasn't her kind of faith. Right. It was really what allowed her to survive was her trust in God. And so that was really how I began. And then I kind of drifted away for a while. And then as a young adult, I came back and became involved with a college ministry group. And that's really where I made faith my own. And and then, of course, I ended up in a very conservative evangelical trajectory, and which I was in for a lot of years. And I think, honestly, seminary, Fuller, <laughs> I know you went to Fuller too. So seminary really saved my faith because I had so many questions and doubts, and I felt like there was nowhere to explore them. And so Fuller provided that safe place to do that. So and I would say from there, I started deconstructing or evolving. My faith started to change and become, and it became a lot more expansive. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about my background. Yeah. So, so many things I want to follow up on, but um, I just love your, how you talk about your abuela and, and the faith of survival, because I feel like that is like literally the crux of like everything that I, you know, talk about in abuelita faith. And so I love that you um, totally 100% understand that and live that and saw that growing up because yeah, I mean, our abuelas didn't have the luxury to like think about, you know, calling or, you know, sit there and, you know, wonder about all of the things of life. I mean, yeah, it was just survival, but you know, as you know, and as I, I talk so much about, I mean, that is, that literally, you know, capital I-S, italicized, is, you know, faith and theology and what we see in the Bible. And yeah, just so much of living and being a human. So I love that. I also love um, how in so much of your book, you're just so honest about your journey and like where you've been and the parts of it that you got what you feel is wrong or harmful maybe, or um, and so you really walk us through that. And I so appreciate that um, because I feel like so many people can really resonate with that. Like, hey, yeah, you know, I did this mission work and my heart was in the right place, but here are all the ways that it was harmful or here are all the ways that here how, is how I've grown or what I've seen different or how we can do different. Um, I love how you even mentioned folks who, um, I forgot her name, but it's that one woman who did, so, you know, helped immigrants so much, but yet had such a harmful view of immigrants. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit later, but yeah, it's, it's very complicated. And so thank you for, you know, kind of naming that tension so much in your book, because that is the tension of what it means to be human. And I think a lot of us experience shame for things that we might've believed or felt, or, and, and that's fine. I think shame in some way, shape or form, we might need to move through it, but um, yeah, so I just want to name that and because you had mentioned being in the conservative thing. And then the last thing that you said is that seminary saved my faith. That's such a good thing because I feel the same way and not everyone feels that way, right? Like for a lot of people, seminary did not save their faith. Um, but for me, it did. And I think um, just like you, it opened up my world and it you know helped me to ask more questions. And so I thought that was an interesting part of your story. So um, yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything to any of that that I said, or we can move on to the next question, because I know I opened up like Pandora's box, and I will, <laughs> I will close it back up if I need to. <laughs> no, I, um, 
I wanted to tell you that, yeah, I wanted to be really vulnerable in this book about some of the things that I got wrong, some of the ways that I was raised to believe things that weren't life-giving or good, and the way that I had to start unlearning or undoing that. And as the book is coming out soon, I have a little bit of a vulnerability hangover (laughs) thinking about it. For sure. Out in the world. But I also feel it's part of what I was trying to address in the book is that immigrants are human beings and we're not, we're flawed because we're human. And so, yeah, definitely. And yes, I agree with you on the seminary thing because, as you know, so many people lose their faith (laughs) in seminary, but you and I found our faith there. So, yeah, yeah, Yeah. it is just a, a. a fun and interesting irony there. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so I was going to ask you this question later, but I feel like it might be a good place um, because you mentioned this idea that, you know, immigrants are human beings. And that with that comes all of the complicated things about what it means to be human. And in Abuelita Faith, I talk about, you know, when I talk about survival, I talk about how survival is complicated, right? And we, you know, expect women, um, poor, marginalized women, kind of like, and I, I received this from Marcela Tals Reed. So she talks about how, um, you know, theology oftentimes is indecent, right? And so like, poor people, marginalized people, because we live in a society that forces us to, you know, live this way, you know, live complicated realities and do quote unquote questionable things and are just human. Um, and I love that you address this and not just with immigrants, I mean, with just marginalized identities in general, right? We demand perfection from people, particularly immigrants, particularly LGBTQIA plus people. We demand perfection from them in order for them to be, and even progressive thinkers, right? I mean, you could be the most progressive thinker and still without realizing it, demand perfection from marginalized people. And so can you talk to us about the myth of the good immigrants and yeah, because you, you know, lay that out really well in your book in multiple ways. So yeah, talk to us about that. Yeah. And I I want to say that I fully agree with you. It is not just immigrants. It's the myth of the good ex marginalized identity, because it's it's very, very true. But yeah, there's a mythology in the U.S., because it is, quote unquote, a nation of immigrants. And so the expectation is that people would come here and they would be somehow the best of the best. They would be the hardworking and keep their head down and be very grateful and never critique the country. And of course, migrate legally and never access public benefits ever. And so there's a mythology around how people are when they're immigrants. And it's not even something that is very, um, that is spoken out loud. It's just something that's kind of in the ether. (laughs) It's something that all of us internalize and we have this expectation. And when it, it comes up, usually when I hear it is when you see somebody on the news who maybe is an immigrant person and they were caught up in a crime that they committed. And all of a sudden people uh, start this sort of anti-immigrant narrative. Well, immigration doesn't cause crimes. Human beings are the ones who commit crimes and immigrants happen to be human beings. And so that's where you really see it pop up. Um, And so I really wanted to address that because it seems like a small thing. It seems like something that's not a big deal, but it's insidious because what it does is it holds people to an expectation that even native citizens can't meet. And it takes away from their ability to be fully who they are, uh, to, you know, we're human beings and we're frail and we will have struggles and we will have problems and these are all part of our broken humanity. And I really believe it takes away from the image of God in people because Jesus himself had frailties, expressed exhaustion, became angry, 
cried, became frustrated. All of these things are part of humanity. And so I really wanted to draw that out and put it on the table to talk about because it's out there and I hear it and I see it. I see it also on the flip side, connected very much to DACA recipients. So young people who were brought as children and their parents were undocumented and now they have this temporary protection, but people always hold them up as if they're these wonderful, uh, perfect people. And they're not, they're just people. It's not their fault. They're being held up like this. And really it's, they're being held up against their own parents who were just trying to survive, who are trying to do the best they could for their children. And so this is an area where you see sort of the good side of it, but there's a lot of harm caused even in that. Yeah, that's so good. Um, And so helpful because it's true. I feel like it's something that we, you know, hold to, it's not spoken, but we just, I remember I took a, a class on immigration at Fuller and I mean, that was a huge part of like what we learned, right? It was like, well, immigrants, you know, they provide so much more and this, and it's, I mean, and that's not, that's, that's not true. Um, but yeah, it's upholding people to unrealistic expectations all of the time. Um, and I love how you, in your book, and you mentioned it here, brought Jesus into it. I mean, it's true, right? Like we hold folks to higher expectations than we do Jesus. Like, you know, people with margin, marginalized people or people who hold marginalized identities can't get upset. Imagine, right? Um, uh, because we're talking about immigration, but an immigrant person, you know, throwing a table over angry, you know, it'd be like, well, you you know, that that would be considered such an inappropriate thing to do. And yet here we have Jesus doing everything. So yeah, I think it's, um, it's a really necessary uh, and helpful point that you make. And something that I'm sure not many people have really thought through that much, because again, it's, as you mentioned, it's insidious. We think people think that it's a positive or a good thing. Yeah, well, look, you know, um, we're speaking well of, you know, but yeah, it does do more harm um, than it does good in the end. So I, I'm really thankful that you uh, write about that so well in your book. So I did want to ask, and I was going to ask this first, but I'll ask this now because I feel like it's so important and it even speaks to what we were just talking about, um, your book title. I adore your book title. I think it's perfect. I think, um, and it communicates so much. I mean, it's like just communicates the entire message of what you're trying to say, but your book is called Beyond Welcome. And then of course the subtitle is Centering Immigrants and Our Christian Response to Immigration. Um, but the title Beyond Welcome. Can you talk to us about that title? Um, because the, the, you know, sort of the rhetoric of welcome is so popular. And so you're pushing past that. Can you talk to us about, you know, what, what you mean by beyond welcome? Ah, thanks, Kat. So beyond welcome, I wanted to call the book something that would take us past welcome because I feel like most Christians sort of get stuck there. They enter the conversation, learning about immigration, and then, oh, I welcome immigrants now. You know, I think they're good for the country, and that's great. And that's sort of the end of what people think about. And what I wanted to do was to elevate the discourse beyond that. Okay, well, now what are our responsibilities? What are our opportunities for growth? beyond that. And so that's where I wanted to take the conversation. And so I called it Beyond Welcome very purposely, just because wanting to people to know this is a book for people who are already welcome. But now what's next? How do I need to grow in my thinking? What do I need to unlearn? What are the myths I've internalized that I really need to root out? What are some ways in which I really want to move past this very beginning welcome. Yeah, that's so good. And I love that. I feel like your first book and your second book are just perfect together and, you know, as a starting point and then as a moving deeper, which um, I feel like we have a lot of starting points, right? Um, and I feel like your book was a necessary one in the conversation. Um, but yeah, w- let's let's go deeper. Like, okay, we welcome. Cool. <laughs> you know, that's helpful. Now, 
Um, what do we do beyond that? Um, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of us get stuck at that and not just with immigration, but with so many things, you know, we get stuck. So many of our conversations regarding race and so many things um, do kind of end at that starting point. Right. Um, so anyway, this is such a helpful work. So thank you. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the Bible. I know that you know that I love talking about the Bible and in all the ways that, um, yeah, we can tease things that are that we haven't heard before or that challenge us even further. And I absolutely adored what you shared about Joseph, mainly because I had never heard it before. So of course, whenever I'm like, I've never thought of it, this, I'm like, yes. So I was like circling and highlighting. Um, I'm going to read a little bit and then I would love for you to just elaborate on what I'm just what I'm going to quote. Um, Okay, so you talk about how the supreme irony often lost on us is that Joseph created a system of exploitation so brutal that God raised another young Hebrew, Moses, a few generations later to see people to um, bring people out of bondage. How might this story, and then you ask, how might this story have turned out differently if Joseph had held on to his Hebrew identity and culture, but integrated into Egyptian culture? Would he have sought the common good instead of only what was good for Pharaoh? I thought, again, that was so helpful to kind of see it that way, because we often have a positive view of Joseph um, because he had compassion for his brother, Benjamin, or his family. You know, so there's, again, that complicated notion of Joseph, Joseph's story, but I love that you kind of call him out. Can you talk to us a little bit about Joseph and his story and just this, this idea that he created this system and what if he would have held on to his Hebrew identity? Yeah. And I want to tell you that I posted on Twitter when I started reading these things about Joseph, people progressive and not oh were so upset about me oh, yeah. bringing Joseph off of his pedestal and being, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. that's how people uh, were with David at first. And I think now mm-hmm. they're like, okay, fine. David kind of sucked, but like, yeah, Joseph yeah. is another one. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah. So I read across a, a little book by Walter Brueggemann called journey to the common good and it's where a lot of these ideas were explored. And then I, I went deeper because it was just fascinating to me because you have Joseph, this person who was essentially trafficked to Egypt, sold into slavery by his brothers, and he suffers tremendously for many, many years. And then he comes out of this and he doesn't just come out. I mean, he comes out at the very, very top, right? He's brought out of prison. He becomes Pharaoh's uh, right-hand man, and he gets an Egyptian wife, and he gets a new name. He gets an Egyptian name, and now he is basically in charge of all of Egypt. And it's interesting because once he's free, he never makes any effort to go home to Canaan to visit his father and brother. I mean, there were two people that he deeply loved who didn't harm him and he never makes any effort. In fact, it's his family that comes to him. And so what I saw in the story of Joseph is one, I understand why he assimilated. You know, he spent all of his life from the time he was a teenager in Egypt into his thirties, right? And so now this is his new home He speaks like a native because his brothers don't even recognize that he's not Egyptian. And here he is, and he has fully adopted this new country, and he's fully assimilated as an Egyptian. And so we would think, oh, this is really great, (laughs) right? And in, in the one hand, it is. It is the way that immigrants have always survived because this was forced on us. We were told, don't, you know, speak your language and you need to be a part of the melting pot, right? And so that's what Joseph did. And it ends up being that not only does he adopt language and culture, but he also really ends up assimilating to systems of oppression, to not recognizing that he's part of this machine that is not only enslaving his own people eventually, but also all of the Egyptians. I mean, Egyptians give up 
everything. They give up their grain, then they give up their land, then they give up their very selves. And Pharaoh becomes more and more powerful and acquires more and more land. And Joseph is the architect of this system. And so this is not a story that we like to focus on. We love the, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Right. Look at where I am. That We love that part of Joseph's right. story. But it really does continue from there. There's a lot more to it. And I wanted to draw that out because there is a benefit to integrating versus uh, being able to assimilate like that. And so you see that differently in the life of Moses, for example. But the fact that you see this in the life of Joseph was really important for me to draw out for people, for them to see this is the way that it can really play out and be extremely harmful. And of course, we see it in our culture, right? We see, we know that most of the people, for example, who are working for the Border Patrol Mm. are Latinx people. They are, in fact, the ones that are in charge of harming and keeping people in detention. And this is what happens when you assimilate to systems of oppression, right? Right. And, you know, I know there's a lot of complication there, that there's not a lot of jobs in the borderlands. And so this is a, a place where people can come in. But I see it all around when you see it in Latinos for Trump, for example. Mm-hmm. Here you have a person who is actively targeting and harming their community, but they've so assimilated into white supremacy, if you will, that now they're part of the problem of oppressing their own. And so it plays out a lot, not just in the ancient world, but in ours as well. And so there really is an important benefit to to not assimilating. So good. So I did my next question and you touched on this. So maybe you can just go a little bit deeper. Um, I did want you to talk to folks who may not really understand the full difference between assimilating and integrating. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the difference and also perhaps use Moses as an example, which you did in your book. And I'll just share a little quote of what you said, which is kind of, you know, kind of answering my own question, but I would love for you to just talk more, maybe using Moses as I, as I said, so you said those who assimilate identify wholly with their host country cult, country's culture and deny or suppress their own. But those who integrate learn to navigate the basic values and principles of the society they live in while maintaining their distinctive cultural identities and practices. And I thought that was such a perfect way to explain it. Um, can you talk more? And then, yeah, just talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. So integrating is different because it's, um, you know, so there's the melting pot idea, right? And that's assimilation. You know, you put something in a melting pot, it just dissolves and you can't recognize it from anything else. It's all Mm -hmm. one thing. But integrating is different. It's more of what I call the salad bowl idea. Mm. We're in a salad. Yes, it's one salad, but you can tell, oh, that's a tomato. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's a piece of broccoli. That's a piece of cauliflower, carrot, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. You can tell that all the pieces, what all the pieces are, even though they form this one dish. And that's really what you're talking about with integration. So people are allowed, of course, to maintain their language, their culture. They're not pressured to lose these things to prove that they are loyal or that they belong in the new country. And this is incredibly important just on some practical levels. Think about their connection to their own parents. Right. I mean, if my parents had listened to teachers who told them not to speak to us in Spanish I don't know how they would have communicated with us. That was their heart language. And that's how they showed us love and care and communicated with us. And a lot of immigrant parents lose that because they're pressured not to teach their children Spanish or whatever the host, uh, you know, the, um, the, their culture of origins language was. And so when you integrate, you allow people to keep all of these things People are encouraged, in fact, to hold on to their culture, to their language, to all of those things, but to also then become a part. It doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. So you can keep your culture of origin, your language of origin, and then add English and American culture 
And we know this is possible that many of us navigate life this way. And I think Miami, actually, where you're from, is a great example of this. You have the Cuban community that's really held on. You have a little Havana, right? People really have held on to their culture and their language, but they're also a part of the U.S. And so they go to school and they go to college and they are part of the U.S. as well. And so that's really what I was trying to get at because I was a teacher and I saw how much pressure in particular teachers um, put on children to assimilate. And I did it myself. I thought it was the best way. And when I was, you know, going through college, um, that was the belief that that was the good, the good thing Mm -hmm. is to pressure people into assimilation rather than integration. And so I draw an example in the book of the way that integration can be this really powerful life-giving good thing. And I, I use the example of Dr. Bennett Omalu, who was the person who identified the concussions in NFL players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody else was willing. I read so much about this man <laughs> researching this book. <laughs> nobody else was willing to touch it because they they were they said to themselves, I'm not going to go up against the NFL. I'm yeah. not going to confront that. We don't need to go, you know, delve into this. But this man made a decision like, you know, he wasn't part of American culture to the point where he thought football was king. Right. And so he thought, no, we owe something to these human beings. Mm-hmm. And so he began his research and his work as a result of that. And so part of the power that has come with immigration, people think it's assimilation, but it's actually not. It's that people retain who they are, their ideas, their culture, their background, and they bring this new perspective into different areas within the U.S. And it's a really powerful and beautiful thing. But the problem is that most people don't know there's an option other than assimilation. Yeah, that's so good. And so how do you, when you, when you draw that connection, which by the way, I love um, the the connection that you drew um, with this doctor and how about with Moses? Like, how would you say the difference between Moses and Joseph? So you have Moses who also grew up in Egypt, even though he was a Hebrew person, just like Joseph, but there's something in Moses that won't allow him to fully let go of his identity as a Hebrew person, he holds on to it. And in the beginning, you start to see that he notices, you know, he grows up mm. as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he starts to look around and see the oppression, mm. see the mistreatment of his own people, the Hebrews. He hasn't forgotten, no, I am a Hebrew. Yes, I grew up in this very privileged situation, but these are still my people and this is wrong. And he goes about it in wrong ways at first, right? Um, But there's this connection that he maintains to his past. And and the fact that he becomes this person who not only understands the way Egypt works really well, right? But he also is still connected to his own people. And that makes him an ideal person to be able to, you know, be the bridge between these two cultures and be able to lead the people out right? Be the person who talks to Pharaoh, be the person who understands, oh, I'm going to use my knowledge of this oppressive system, but I'm going to undermine it, right? And I'm going to help my people toward freedom and liberation. But see, not assimilating helps him to see this. Whereas you see in the life of Joseph, he assimilates so much that he doesn't even recognize whoa, I become part of something really bad. Here I am. I become a tool of the empire. I am enslaving Egyptians. I am bringing my own people here. I'm not doing what's good for the common good, for the whole world. I'm only doing what's good for Egypt. And this is making Egypt powerful, but it's harming everyone else. Mm. He doesn't see that. Whereas Moses really does. But it's that connection to his Hebrew background that keeps him able to see, wait, these are my people. Right. And I'm a part of this. I'm a part of them and their suffering matters. And so Mm -hmm. 
I, I draw a real difference between the two. And, you know, there's a theologian, uh, Daniel Jose Camacho. I know you know him too. But he wrote this really great article that really got me thinking about that and sort of digging deeper into that story. But yeah, it's a real contrast because, of course, what most people would say is, well, we can't judge Joseph by 21st century standards, which is true. I support that. But Moses wasn't a 21st century person, and he was able to do things in a much different way. And and really, when he chose the side of the oppressed, his story doesn't end in glory. His right. story ends in poverty. You know, he ends up in the wilderness, and he's not allowed to enter the promised land. It's a very different end from the end that Joseph got. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good distinction, distinction to make. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's holding on to your background where we can find, and and, and it might not be you know, this, this, as you mentioned, glory for ourselves in the end, but it's where we find liberation. And I'm sure there was, there was a sense of liberation, even in Moses' story. I mean, literal, you know, mm-hmm. liberation, out of, but you know, there must've been a sense of, of coming home of, of feeling, you know, I can't imagine. I mean, and you even see sort of the turmoil in Joseph, right? I mean, you see um, like when his family comes back and and obviously you know we don't get the fullness of everything he was experiencing but you see a tension there you see a struggle right you see that there was something there that you know perhaps it wasn't you know he didn't feel um yeah full fully himself or full you know what i mean um so anyways i think that that's such a good um connection um when it comes to Moses and the idea of integration and also, you know, Dr. Omalu, as you mentioned, I thought that was, you know, that's such a perfect um, story, you know, and it's, you wouldn't, uh, when you originally, or, you know, when you read it, you wouldn't necessarily draw that connection, but I think that you do a good and an incredible job of drawing that connection saying, Oh, wait a minute. It was his, you know, connection to his, to who he is fundamentally that allowed him to, yeah. I mean, really do justice in the end. Um, so thank you for that. Okay, I have two last questions. Let's see. Okay, we have a little bit more time. Um, so I would love for you to talk about um, the struggle of LGBTQ plus immigrants. Um, this is an intersection, as you mentioned in your book, that is not talked about enough. Um, and it, But it is a very important intersection to draw out. Um, so can you talk to us sort of about, you know, that, that struggle? Yeah. Yeah, I this really mattered to me is talking about LGBTQ plus immigrants because it is something that is invisible because again there's only one narrative in the immigration conversation and it's always you know a Latinx family mm. <laughs> right of hard workers right and you don't hear the stories of other people and so in particular I was drawn to the stories of LGBTQ immigrants because I worked in an organization that worked with refugees and other immigrants. And one of the things I saw is just the real struggle of LGBTQ plus immigrants, because not only do they have to fight, you know, homophobia, transphobia, all of that in their home culture, but also here in the U.S., Right. They face not just the same journey as every other immigrant or refugee asylum seeking person, but then they also face harassment and violence from other migrants, mm-hmm. rejection from people in their own community, usually even in their own family. And then they face here in the US where it's 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 better for sure than in a lot of places, but it's still not a place free. Of homophobia, and particularly if they want to live in communities, uh, most people don't know when refugees are resettled, they're resettled in communities with other people who are also from that country. But often that's dangerous for LGBTQ right. immigrants because of the homophobia, because of the transphobia, and so it's it can be um, an extremely painful journey that is full of more complexities than even an asylum seeker or refugee already has. And so, yeah, what I encountered was 
the difficulty that people face and then um, the isolation of being here. And really the only, um, what I saw in, in any way was that really people found solace finding not community among their own, but community among other LGBTQ plus people in the U S yeah. and so, yeah, it's a very, um, I, I don't think people, um, realize the, how painfully difficult it can be in some countries. There are countries where it's illegal um, to be gay. It's illegal and you can be put in prison or the police don't respond when you call them because they think you deserve whatever's happening to you. Just a number of things that happen to people who are LGBTQ plus. And, you know, what I encountered was that one of the cruelties of our asylum system is that people have to be able to prove a credible fear Mm. and they have to be able to convince officials, right, of this. Mm. And usually what this entails is showing text messages, letters, whatever it was of people persecuting you, harassing you. And I remember in particular a man coming to the legal clinic where I was working and he really wanted in his country, it was illegal to be gay. He literally risked his life. And so he wanted asylum in the U S and he could apply for it. Mm. However, what he was told was by the legal practitioner was you have to out yourself to Mm. your family. So we need proof beyond just, what you're saying that you're gay and the proof that your country has laws against this, like we have to be able to show a credible fear. And so essentially this man would have to put at risk every relationship and support system in his entire life to be able to apply for asylum. And then the application is not guaranteed because 70% are declined. They're rejected And so he ended up not applying for asylum and going back Mm -hmm. to a situation that was going to be dangerous for him, but he just felt like he couldn't do that because he told us, even the people I'm staying with don't know that I'm gay. And so there is a particular vulnerability with LGBTQ plus immigrants and also with black immigrants that is never talked about. And that really needs to be brought into the light And, you know, I struggled, Kat, with including um, that part, not because it's not important, but because I know that everything that's out about LGBTQ plus people is always about suffering and struggle and persecution. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to add to that narrative. But at the same time, the vulnerability of these particular immigrants is so dire that I really felt it needs to be brought into the light. People need to be aware of this. This is something we need to care about. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I'm so glad you did because I think that even just um, talking about that intersection is not many people do. And so, and I totally understand your struggle, you know, between not wanting to continue perpetuating the trauma narrative. Um, But yeah, I mean, at the same time, these are very unique or maybe not unique is the best word, but very nuanced um, intersections. And, and, you know, it's always helpful to bring those into the conversation, even to just mention them, like these are intersections that exist and we need to name them. Um, But actually this is a perfect segue um, because I did want to talk to you. The last question I wanted to ask was about ethical storytelling, right? And we just mentioned, you know, not um, perpetuating trauma narratives just for the sake of perpetuating trauma narratives. Um, and I was so thankful for this chapter in your book. Um, I find it so necessary. Again, like so much of what you bring up is just so necessary and so nuanced. Um, but yeah, I thought this was really good because I feel like this is a constant ongoing thing that again, right? So much of what we're talking about is quote unquote, right intentions and a quote unquote, right heart. And, you know, but again, it's insidious and it's, it causes more harm than good. And so can you talk to us about ethical storytelling? And you actually start that chapter by mentioning this Mayan greeting. 
that really struck me that says um, the rough translation, and I'll just mention the translation is that you are my other self or you are myself, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a beautiful way to introduce this idea of ethical storytelling. So yeah, if you want to just close us off with that, talk to us about um, why you brought that up, because I think that that's also important, the why behind it, and also what that means in this conversation. Yeah, so this chapter, <laughs> you know, I wanted to write it and I wanted to be honest about the fact that I've been guilty of it as well, but that we right, can all right. commit to doing better once we're aware of it because I didn't want people to just be shamed. I wanted them to learn about this just as I have learned about it myself. Totally. And so ethical storytelling just has to do with having the proper consent um, to use someone's story. And so this comes up often in newsletters. So you have different nonprofits, of course, that are supporting not just immigrants, but a lot of different marginalized people. Right. And so they'll tell a story and it's part of letting their supporters know uh, or part of raising awareness about a particular issue. And so they want people to know about this. So they'll share a story because stories help us to connect to things, not just right. with our minds, but also with our hearts. And so they're, they're particularly powerful for that reason. And you hear them often at fundraising dinners um, or fundraising events and it's very, very common to do this. And so what I wanted to address was, is this ethical? Mm -hmm. One, we're portraying people very much just one side. We're not talking about their resilience or their strength, their gifts and their talents. It's just their suffering being laid out. They call it trauma porn, mm -hmm. right? Laying it out for other people to consume. And one, do we even have consent to share these stories? And what kind right. of consent do we have? And do we allow people to withdraw consent and thus we stop telling the story? Mm -hmm. Or is it something that we think we have ownership of? And so a lot of organizations, for example, will ask people to sign something like a blanket kind of consent. Mm -hmm. And it it really is not enough, in my opinion, to really have consent, it needs to be something living and active to where people, every time that story is used, they need to know what it's going to be right. used for and they need to give their permission because the ends don't justify the means. We don't really, we can't violate someone's humanity or use their story for the sake of fundraising. And that's okay because we're going to use this money to serve other immigrants. So that's not okay. And in fact, it's not necessary right? because I have seen people who are able to practice ethical storytelling and still are able to do the work they need to do. So it's not like an either or. And I right. think that's where people get in trouble. Well, we need to do this because this mm -hmm. is how people connect. Right. Well, you don't, you don't mm -hmm. have to do it. Um, that way that there are other ways to talk about stories. And I give some in the, in the book, some ways that people can approach this. And there are times that people are going to want to share their story and that's great. And the other thing that's a part of that is letting people tell their story in their own voice. Right, right. So, you know, I've seen situations where people are coached, Oh, emphasize this, but not this. Mm. Um, no, people should be allowed to, t it's their story. And if we don't own our own story, what exactly belongs to us, right? Yeah. And yeah. so being able to tell our story in the way that we understand it, mm -hmm. the way that we have processed it and being able to talk about it. And so, um, and I've seen even progressives do this wrong. Yeah. For example, you know, I saw this really great video of a church that had, where this woman had been in sanctuary Right. But she wasn't allowed to tell the story. Instead, the very liberal pastor mm -hmm. was telling her story on her behalf because right. why? Well, her English is not mm. perfect grammatically and it's right. got a strong accent. It's not professional enough, quote unquote. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to tell the story on her behalf. That's not okay either. Let people right. tell their own story yeah. in their own words. And so right. this to me is really important because I see this happen a lot 
with any group working with marginalized people. Mm-hmm. It happens so much and people just need to be called on it. And they also need to know that there's alternative ways of doing this right. that achieve the same or better results. And so, yeah. and I also encourage people, you know, to ask when you hear a story, ask, so did the person give you permission to share this story? I was yeah. at a conference once where I just asked, you just shared this story. Is there a reason why that person wasn't here to share their own story? It's okay to call people out and make them accountable. You don't have to be rude and you don't have to be harsh, but just encourage people. Let them know that this matters to you as well as a listener, that you care that the story that they're sharing, they have the proper consent to share, or there's a reason why the person whose story it is isn't sharing it themselves. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's true. Um, Like you mentioned, so many of us are guilty of it. And we don't even realize it. And so I think that this is an important thing to kind of add into the narrative and challenge all of us to think deeper when we're attempting, again, to do something in the right heart. um, Is it more harmful than it is good? And I think that this can lead us into even more deeper paths of liberation and healing and flourishing. And I think that that's what many of us truly want is that we want to walk in ways that are not just liberating and for ourselves, but for all of those around us. And Karen, you really do such an incredible job of inviting us um, in such a, I think because so much of what you're asking us to do is to dig so much deeper into ourselves. I mean, literally it doesn't matter who we are because I, even me who, you know, I'm a part of this work. There's so much that I have learned from your book and so much that has challenged me. And so I think that, 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 you know, this is just, incredible. And you totally deserved a starred Publishers Weekly Review. I just wanted to throw that out there because it's well-deserved. So Karen, thank you for this work. Um, I think it's going to be, it's just, yeah, it's going to change so many lives. Um, Can you talk to folks just about where they can learn more about you and this book? Um, This episode will come out on Pub Day. So yay for that. It'll be a fun celebration. Uh, But yeah, just talk to us about um, where we can find more about you. Yeah. So you can usually find me on Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is the same at both. It's at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. And I also have a website if you want to contact me because I don't check DMs because usually it's very creepy. But (laughs) through my website, you can contact me and that's Karen-Gonzalez.com. And you can get the book wherever books are sold. Yes. Awesome. And I'll provide links to all of that on the show notes. 